So you may or may not have word, heard the word caste system before. Um, in mo- much of the world, uh, for thousands of years, still to this day, a lot operate off of what's known as a caste system. And what this does is it differentiates people into different classes, um, mostly based off of socioeconomic standing, uh, but a lot of it has to do with the family that you've been born into. Um, there's not you know, a a lot of other ways that you move in or out of a caste system like this other than the family you identify with or the work that the family does. Uh, India has probably been one of the more common ones that people know about. Um, And what they've done is they have a system, again, going back a couple few thousand years, uh, where there's a hierarchy of four different tiers. And what it's based off of is the working class, essentially. So your high intellectuals kind of sit up top. And then it works all the way down to what would essentially be your migrant workers doing the farm labor. Um, and then they actually have a fifth tier, but it's weird because it's not listed as a fifth tier. They only have four tiers, but the fifth tier is the people that are like beneath dogs. Like they're not even like counted within this tier. Um, they, they are not seen as human. Uh, and this is how India has, has operated a lot. In the last uh, century or so, um, the formalization of this, they have started to move away from. But what, what most would say is that the caste system, though not physically in place, is still in place. People are still identified by their last name. People are still identified by the work they do or the work that they do not do. Um, and they are still subject to a caste system, essentially. Here in the U.S., we would pride ourselves on not having a caste system. We would be a free society where people can uh, pull themselves up by the bootstraps. People can, can come and, and live the American dream and make something out of nothing. And while that story can be true for many, it's not the true story for all. And what happens is we can actually find a caste system that is not maybe physically or tangibly in place, but we still look at people differently based off of socioeconomic status. We can still group people very quickly just by looking at them, whether it be by race or ethnicity, maybe maybe their cultural attire, the way they dress, maybe the way they talk. Uh, I mean, there's a number of things. We can keep going down the list, but we can still find ourselves within a caste system even though we're not inside the caste system. Uh, Brian Stevenson, a social activist and author, um, had this to say that I thought was pretty interesting. Then it's reclick. Well, it. I've been trying to say something Thank about you. our criminal justice system. Uh, this country is very different today than it was 40 years ago. In 1972, there were 300,000 people in jails and prisons. Today, there are 2.3 million. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. We have 7 million people on probation and parole, and mass incarceration, in my judgment, has fundamentally changed our world. In poor communities and communities of color, there is this despair, there is this hopelessness that is being shaped by these outcomes. One out of three black men between the ages of 18 and 30 is in jail, in prison, on probation, or parole. In urban communities across this country, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, 50 to 60 percent of all young men of color in jail or prison or on probation and parole. Our system isn't just being shaped in these ways that seem to be distorting around race, they're also distorted by poverty. We have a system of justice in this country that treats you much better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. So with that said, right there at the end, he said this, wealth, not culpability, shapes outcomes. Looking at wealth, as shaping an outcome for someone, that would fall under a caste system, the way we look at people socioeconomically. James, as we continue in the series called Now What, is writing to a church that has been 
just spread out across the empire. They have been kicked off of their land. They have been subject to pure manual labor and the, the jobs that no one else wants to do. They are taxed at these incredibly high tax rates. And what we find is this massive division. Now, social scientists of our modern day would say that right now today, we are more divided as a nation than when we are in the era of the Civil War. And that mostly falls into politics and religion. And James, in his wisdom of writing to a church that is being persecuted, that is massively divided from, call it church and state, from the Roman Empire to being a Christian, but then even within the Christian church, you have all of these people coming together from different backgrounds, from different places, trying to figure out how to live together, how to follow the ways of Jesus together. I don't know about you, but over this last year, and the last year and a half now, as we continue to kind of further and further into this, we have been confronted left and right with things that have just shaken us up. Whether it be our faith, whether it be our political views, whether it be ways that we see race or ethnicity, or whether we don't see these things at all. The ground has shifted underneath us. Then you throw the pandemic, you throw uh, everything else that comes with and the unknown about health and disease and, uh, and death, and we're confronted with death in new ways that have maybe gotten closer to home than they ever have before. We can look to James for wisdom of how are we supposed to live this out? How are we supposed to walk in the ways together as a church, together as the people of God, together in one of the most divided times we will probably ever see? So James 2 says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This whole message in so many ways can be wrapped up in one sentence. My brothers and sisters, believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must, who must not show favoritism. Who must not look at other people and based on their outward appearance, start to favor someone above another. What we're talking about is partiality, where we actually look down on other people based on the things that we identify them as, going all the way back to the caste system. We can look at people very quickly, and we start to just make determinations and judgments and thoughts of who they are and what they're up to. And in that, we can either favor them based on what they see, or... We can be partial to them. We can look down on them. We can tell them to go sit over there or sit at my feet. But the person we favor, we want to draw near to them. We want them to be close. We want them to sit in front. We want others to see that they are here. Can you think about people like that in your life? For most of us, we tend to favor the people that are most like us. We tend to favor the people that look most like us, that talk most like us, that have a similar career path, that grew up in and around the same area. You just go on and on and on, and naturally we can find more commonality with people that are similar to us. And it's very easy to start favoring that. And in so many ways, I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm thankful for those that I favor who are similar to me and have stories similar to mine. I'm, I'm, I am thankful for that. But then what do we do with partiality? What do we do with this idea that we can look at other people and based on their socioeconomic status, the way they dress, what they, whatever it looks like, that we can actually look at them and tell them to go on their way, to disregard them, to look beyond them? 
Who is it in your life? Who do you tend to favor? And when or why do you tend to favor them? And maybe spending a little extra time, who do you show partiality to? What color is their skin? What side of town do they live on? How do they walk, talk, or dress? What do they do or do not do morally right in your eyes? Who is that person? Because the reality is that we all have it. Caitlin and I were at the park. Um, this was a couple months back. We were at Woodward Park, and there was a family there that, that was there before we got there, and it was a few young kids, um, what appeared to be a mom and a dad, and, and the dad uh, was, was working on his rap, his, his rap music, um, and for, for everybody to hear. Like, he, he wasn't, like, privately working on it. Like, it was something that he does, and he, he wants to, like, be in the career of rapping, and 25, 30 minutes we were there, I picked this person apart. By the way he interacted with his kids, by his rap music, I guessed what side of town he lives on, I look at the way he's dressed, I look at his language, everything about him I picked apart for 20, 25, 30 minutes. It wasn't until the very end that I actually had this like kind of come to moment of, of like, why? why? Why am I doing this? But in every single way, I was looking down on him. I was making assumptions of him. I was counting him out of so many things. 20, 25 minutes at a park. Every single day, wherever we are, even in this space right now, we can either choose favoritism or we can choose partiality. And I would bet that our number one instinct is to do either or. It's not often that we get to a place of not judging. We usually start with judging and then there's some point of kind of working through. James continues in this, uh, verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to him who you belong? Psychologists will tell you that in their work of figuring out how people interact with one another, um, they talk about the roles, of, the roles of enemies in our life. People that are different than us, people that, that we see as a threat, people that we have uh, determined to be against us. And they come to a, a number of things, but two of them is that there's a natural reaction in us when there is chaos, when we're in a season of unknown, when there is in unpredictable moments, we tend to make enemies. We, we tend to look at other people and determine them as others, as them or us versus them. And psychologically, this actually plays out in a lot of ways. It could, for so many years, it was for survival. You would very quickly know if someone was a threat to your life or not. And we don't tend to walk around with like spears and things anymore, but it's, it's different when we're not in a modern day where we're constantly under threat. But what happens is that the threats that we used to receive as a, you know, kind of a primal age, we now receive threats otherwise, but we still have the need to create enemies. So the threats could be this last year and a half with the pandemic. It's threatened our jobs, it's threatened our health, it's threatened our family, whatever it is, there has been threat. As we look at the socio-political climate that we found ourselves in, and if we uh, agree heavily on one side or the other, we can tend to see the other side as a threat to what we believe. As we look at the continued systemic racism in our country and we see things continue to play out, we all have different views on them. What we tend to naturally do is to see the others that don't agree with us as the threat. 
And there's two ways that specifically this plays out. Um, For a reason, enemies give us someone to blame so that we don't have to look within ourselves of where we are wrong. So that we don't have to assume assume responsibility for the things that are going wrong. We can actually tend to very quickly look for someone to blame. We will blame shift so that we can feel better about ourselves. So when the world is falling apart, when things are going down left and right, it's very quickly to say, well, yeah, it's their fault. Well, if they just stop doing that over there. Well, if they, if they could just figure this piece out. And then the second part would be they also give us a sense of control in the face of evil and suffering. A, a sense that this is what's wrong with the world, and again, they are the problem. But we need control when things are unpredictable. We need control when things feel chaotic. And here's two ways which very quickly we start to become partial to other people. So again, I ask over this last year and a half, as maybe things in your life have felt threatened, they've been unpredictable, who have you blame shifted? What party are they a part of? What have been their views? Maybe what do they post about? You just go down the list, left and right. It might be within your own family. It might be your coworkers. It might be your neighbors. Because odds are in all of those circles, people disagree with you. But who is it? Who have you actually handed partiality to? And then in that, who have you chosen favoritism with? I mean, this is, the, this is like the idea when you walk into a large group, say you're showing up to a concert or something like that, and the person you know is working the ticket booth very quickly, you're, you're happy to know them because they might be able to get you into the front seat of the concert, right? You show favoritism towards, or they show favoritism towards you. You're the person that might have a name in town, or they know their people, and other people would look to you to say, oh, I want to help them out because then they look good because they're helping someone that has popularity. I mean, you just, the list goes on and on of how we look at other people. And what James is doing here is he's not just talking about the poor and how we judge or become partial to. He's also talking about what we do with the rich, what we do with those who have, and how very quickly they get boiled down to just the thing that they are or the things that they have or the things that they can do for us. Because the partiality of the poor is that they cannot do anything for us. The favoritism of the rich is that they can do something for us. And either way, we have placed judgment on people, for whatever reason it can be. When life is unpredictable, welcome the unwanted. This this is what I want us to hear, if anything, today, that when life is unpredictable, when life is coming at us, when we're feeling threatened, when we're feeling dispersed, when we don't know what's going on, can we double down on the people who we may not want Can we actually double down and move towards these people who we are either showing favoritism for, but maybe more importantly, those who we're showing partiality to? Because James is is doing something here that's saying that in this relationship, in this divide, the things that are happening to you, you are somehow choosing favoritism for these reasons, but those who you're showing favoritism to are not going to give you all the things that you need in this time. But what about those that can't give you anything? How might that be a gift in your life? What would it look like that when things are unpredictable, we actually double down and we welcome those that are unwanted? Continuing in verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, 
you've become a lawbreaker. So that's what he's saying here is to love your neighbor as yourself would be the royal law. That would uphold all of the commandments. But along with this, there are things that you need to do to actually love your neighbor and uphold this. But guess what? The one thing of partiality will actually just kick the whole thing out from under itself. The table in which love your neighbor has been built on loses a leg, the table falls. It's the same thing of like, hey, I haven't, what do you say? I haven't killed anyone, but I've committed adultery or vice versa. Well, it's like, but you've, you've fallen short. Like, you can't just, like, choose which one you're, you're falling up to. James continues to say that in this life of following Jesus, especially when things are hard, how are we loving others? How are we looking outwards? How are we moving beyond our unpredictable circumstances and the hard times that we find ourselves in? Now, it can be easy. It can be easy here to look at kind of maybe a, a progressive inclusion and say, man, we're doing this. And I, 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 for one, can say I am proud of Midtown. I'm proud of our church. I'm proud of you because I, I do believe we are moving in good ways of being open to other people, to loving other people well, to looking at the poor, the marginalized, the outsider. And we have so much work to do and to keep moving forward. But I believe our, posh, our heart posture is moving towards that. But what can be easy to do is just look at this and say, yes, we need to look at the poor. We need to move towards them. We need to look at all of those. And you know what? Those that are causing the oppression, those that people tend to favor, those that are doing all the harm, whatever it is, we need to continue to push out. We need to correct. We need to fix. We need to change. Whatever it might be in your head or heart with other people. But again, James is saying that we cannot judge either the poor or the rich. Those that we want to favor or short part, we, we actually find a bridge here. Jesus was known for eating with people. If you actually break apart like, you know, the New Testaments, uh, the four books of the, the starting the, the, the second half of the Bible, it could be said that Jesus was either at a meal, on his way to a meal, or coming from a meal. Like, he was constantly eating. I, we can get down with that. Like, if we need to follow something out of this, like, let's eat together more. But a part of that is that it's who he was eating with. So in... Um, Luke 5, 29 to 31. Kelly, did I add that? I think I did. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Come back to that. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. This piece right here, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus was accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners all the time. He was accused of hanging out with the wrong people all the time. But what's interesting about this, if we look back to who tax collectors were, they were ones who were causing oppression. So as we look at this church, again, kicked off their land, being overworked, doing the dirty work, they were also taxed out of their ears. It's actually said, some would believe that they, there was like a 70 to 80% tax rate by the Roman Empire. The tax collectors were then also Jews who were betraying their own Jewish lineage by charging another fee on top of those taxes. Like our boy Levi here, or maybe better known as Matthew, writing one of the New Testament Gospels. He would charge another fee on top. So to see other Jews hanging out and sitting with Levi here at the table, it's like, how does that work? What, why would they, anyone want to hang out? Most didn't. No one wanted to hang out with that. The big question was like, why is Matthew here? And at the same time, you have the sinners, which oftentimes referred to sex workers, but many people worked up in that. So you have 
oftentimes the oppressed and the oppressor sitting at the same table. That will break down the idea that all we have to do is be open to and move towards those that are on the outside. Because what it starts to paint a picture is that Jesus is hanging out with the same people that you have chose, chosen favoritism for and the same people you see as the problem. Jesus has invited them to the table to have meals together. And it gets pretty wonky. Because like if, if we start to look at the historical context here, like these are two pretty big extremes. In, in other contexts, you actually have one of the disciples who was... Um, uh, he was a Sicario, where they actually kept little knives inside their, their hats, and they would, they would go into crowds, and they would stab Romans or Roman people and flee. And so he was just going around killing people. And so, like, you have all these different people coming together, and it just does not make sense. So I think in a lot of our minds, we can start to look and just say, like, yeah, we, we need to move towards other people. But, you know, those, those people that stormed the Capitol at the insurrection— Jesus isn't hanging out with them. The homeless that are walking here in and through Tower are transient friends. Would Jesus share the table with them? Those that are filling our nightclubs here on the Strip of Olive, would Jesus share the table with them? Those that live on the south end of town, would Jesus share the table with them? Those that live on the north end of town, would Jesus share a table? I mean, go on and on. You can continue to play out the contradictions. And James is calling us to transcend the normal, maybe conservative versus progressive worldview, where someone's causing all the problems, but the way we have it is right. Now, what this does is it should confront us, because we play into favoritism, we play into partiality daily. When life is unpredictable, welcome the unwanted. So I'm going to wrap up, and we're going to move into application here. This last verse in verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the reality is that in the next 20 minutes, in the next hour, as you walk out of here, as you go on with your day, like you're going to have to choose between favoritism and partiality at some point. You might be processing some of that now. I don't know. But it's going to continue to come up. And what we find ourselves in is a life with a God who's extending mercy. Mercy over judgment. But it's something that has to be received. It's something that has to be chosen. It's something that has to be taken. Because the flip side of it is that if we claim the mercy of God, is we have to extend the mercy of God. And if we extend the mercy of God, we will receive the mercy of God. Like, neither of these happens without the other. It's mercy over judgment of those that you don't want to be around. It's mercy over favoritism of those that you might want to be around. To stop using people. To stop forgetting about people. It's mercy that we have to first receive from a merciful God to then be able to extend mercy. One spiritual practice we do um, around here and want to continue growing is contemplative prayer. Um, 
And one of those would be um, actually praying in silence, like where you just kind of sit there and listen for long times. Um, sometimes it feels highly unproductive, and other times you end up in tears. Uh, but a part of it, Teresa actually used a quote one time, Thomas Keating, um, who does this centering prayer piece, he said that every time you get distracted during this time of silence, it's, it's 10,000 reasons to come back to God. So the 10,000 distractions you have are 10,000 reasons to come back to God. The 10,000 times you show partiality are 10,000 times to go back to the mercy that you've received from God. The 10,000 times that you show favoritism, it's 10,000 opportunities to go back to the God and receive the mercy that you have received from him. So that we stop judging. So I'm going to have this on the screen. You don't need to read it out loud, but you can read along. So this confession of sin, I encourage us to adopt. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.